Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. I'm Jocelyn Mesa Miranda. It's Friday, September 16th. Despite ongoing drought in parts of Colorado, it was a wet August in the mountains, and heavy rains brought an abundance of wild mushrooms, including some new to science. As KUNC's Ray Salmon reports, novel mushroom species are more common than you might think, and a lot of them are found by citizen scientists. As a rule, when the rains fall in the mountains of Colorado, the mushroom hunters follow close behind. So on a Wednesday morning in late August, a group of foragers near Colorado Springs is headed out to see what they can find at an elevation of 9,000 feet. It is still pretty wet. We have a lot of eyes on the ground. We'll find stuff. James Shaleen is leading a group of about a dozen on this wild mushroom foray. He's a computer guy by day, but in his spare time, he's the vice president of the Pikes Peak Mycological Society. And then you can also see the mycelium down here. See all the mycelium? And, the... and he regularly takes groups of the curious and the dedicated up winding, often unpaved mountain roads to teach them how to find and identify wild mushrooms. Um, I do know we found chanterelles over on this side. Mushroom enthusiasts get excited about chanterelles, hawks wings, oysters, cambole leads, anything that makes a tasty meal. But today, those delicacies are a bonus. The main draw for many of the foragers on this trip is the opportunity to advance the science of mycology. Oh, wait, wait. Take Ellen Rockefeller. This is a good one. A citizen scientist and an independent mycologist who's a special guest on today's foray. So this bright yellow russula, um, this looks like the one I was finding in Arizona that smells strongly like bananas when it dries. Pretty sure it's a new species. Rockefeller is a serious mushroom hunter. While self-taught, he has now become a highly regarded expert, traveling the world to identify, describe, and analyze the DNA of wild mushrooms. He's been chasing this yet unnamed banana-scented russula from Mexico to Canada. And I found the exact same thing in Michoacan, and uh, it also occurs in British Columbia. But he's excited to find it here in Colorado, too, because that means he can add pieces to the incomplete puzzle of the mycological map. The mushrooms don't get anywhere randomly. So they're you know, associated with the same or similar tree, or they got carried by an animal. But once you have enough points on the map, you can start to figure out a little bit more about what it's doing in the ecology. Rockefeller travels with his own portable laboratory so he can prep mushroom samples for DNA sequencing wherever he is. He'll send this one off to a lab in New Jersey. Then he'll share the information with other mycologists online and everyone gains a deeper understanding of the new species. It doesn't have a name yet, oh, okay. but it should probably be named something having to do with bananas. And the yellow russula is only the beginning. <laughs> I think we've found more new species than we have found species that have names. And when you say new, what do you mean? It means that it hasn't been described yet. So uh, we see it all the time, but the scientists don't have a name for it yet. In fact, it's surprisingly common for new mushroom species to turn up in Colorado during a good monsoon season. These last two seasons have been exceptional because there's been quite a bit of diversity coming up with all the rains. Andrew Wilson is associate curator of mycology at the Denver Botanic Garden. Sometimes they all become a blur. Wilson says there's a ton of mushrooms that aren't fully understood by scientists, partly because they're just hard to observe. Fungi 
are hidden from view. Mushrooms are the reproductive fruit of a larger fungal organism, like apples on an apple tree. The fruit comes and goes, but the tree is always there. Except when it comes to mushrooms, the tree is all underground. And when those mushrooms do sprout, they can be hard to tell apart. We have a lot of different species that just look alike. And then, of course, science lags behind the fieldwork because finding a new species is a breeze compared to the process of documenting it in the scientific literature. We're talking about a couple years worth of work to get the data and do all the proper vetting. And that's where the citizen scientists come in. The vast majority of our collections are from those citizen science collected specimens. But all that research begins here, where Alan Rockefeller is kneeling on the moist forest floor, examining a group of that intriguing yellow russula. It's probably accurate to say that every time you walk through the woods or you know, every time you find fellow citizen scientists through the woods, they're going to notice a lot of new species if they kind of pay attention. It'll be a while yet before this mushroom is christened with a name and introduced to the scientific literature. Rockefeller is too busy chasing new species to be concerned about that. Right now, he's solely focused on this spot in the Colorado mountains, where one more small piece of mushroom ecology falls into place. Ray Solomon, KUNC. While we love a story about rain and mushrooms, let's turn back to the drought in our state. The Colorado River is drying up, and the major cities in the West that depend on it are scrambling to boost their water supplies and keep taps flowing. Climate change is already cutting into the amount they get from Mother Nature, which means some of those cities need to reuse the water they already have. KUNC's Alex Hager has more. Water reuse can feel like an odd proposition, especially when you consider where it was used before. The water that's flowing in here is coming from flush toilets and kitchen sinks and shower drains? Exactly. Rupam Sony does community outreach for the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California. They're betting on recycled water for the future. She's walking through a complicated setup of pipes and pumps that's pulling water from the sewage treatment plant next door and making it ready to drink. So now this water looks like what you expect water to look like. It's really clean and pure after this point. This agency needs as much clean and pure water as it can get. About 19 million people depend on it. Yeah, it's super exciting. It is going to make a substantial change. It's, it, it is going to provide a new supply. The treatment plant cleans up hundreds of millions of gallons every day. Right now, that water is pumped out into the ocean. But this new demo site we're touring shows how it can be cleaned even further and pumped back into municipal pipes at a large scale. David Jasby studies environmental engineering at UCLA. He says the technology is perfectly safe. The level of treatment that wastewater reuse entities use to recycle wastewater is far higher than what we apply to, like, you know, a river or groundwater. I mean, it's like orders of magnitude more intense and extensive. Jasby says it's not only safe, in the arid southwest, it's necessary. We're going to have to increase our local water supply. And one way we know how to do that is through recycling of our wastewater. So I don't think we have much choice. Water recycling is already in place in other communities, sometimes at a large scale. In Orange County, California, for example, they've been doing it for decades. 
Now, this facility near Los Angeles could see a huge development, one that'll cost more than $3 billion to build and more than $100 million to operate each year. Felicia Marcus says that steep cost is worth it. There's not a lot of economy other than it's expensive, but it's a smart investment. I mean, my view is that it'll be priceless in the future. Marcus has chaired California's Water Control Board and the Los Angeles Department of Public Works. She also ran a regional office for the Environmental Protection Agency. The reality we're in now won't exist under climate change. So we have to look at what's the economic cost of not having that water. She says recycled water's time has come. A new generation is ready to trust the technology and get over the, quote, yuck factor. And the decades-long drought that's shrinking the Colorado River has water agencies turning over every stone, looking for more. And Marcus says they're going to find it here. Those agencies are signaling their interest with their wallets. David Johnson is with the Southern Nevada Water Authority, which serves the Las Vegas metro area. I think it's really a perfect solution for Southern California, and I think it's a perfect opportunity for us to be able to partner too and uh, demonstrate that partnership in a tangible way. The deal will work like this. Johnson's agency in Nevada will put up $750 million to help pay for this recycling project in Southern California a facility that their customers will never use. But when Los Angeles is flush with more potable water, it won't have to draw down Colorado River reservoirs like Lake Mead, and that conserved water will be freed up for all of the people in Las Vegas. We would be able to actually not have to build any of that transportation infrastructure to be able to get water from one location to another. So it just makes a lot of sense to us. Back at the recycling demo site, Rupam Sony is hoping they can do more to get the public on board with the project, too, and get over any queasiness about drinking reused water. Soon, the agency could get permits to let people take a sip and try for themselves. Seeing is believing, but drinking is really believing. And across this parched region, with hundreds of millions of dollars coming from state and federal governments, it's likely that a lot more people will be seeing and drinking that reused water in the years to come. In Carson, California, I'm Alex Hager. Last week, the Anti-Defamation League released a report identifying law enforcement and elected officials on a leaked list of members of the Oath Keepers. The ADL identified nearly two dozen Colorado elected officials, law enforcement officers, and military members on the list. The report has raised concerns about the presence of law enforcement and military and extremist anti-government groups. Joining us to talk about this is Jessica Reeves. Jessica is the editorial director with the ADL Center on Extremism. Jessica, let's start with some background. Who are the Oath Keepers? Yeah, the Oath Keepers are a anti-government group. They're part of the militia movement. They believe that the federal government is inherently corrupt. They believe it's been infiltrated by some shadowy conspiracy, and uh, they do not trust laws that are passed down from the federal level. And like other militia groups, their uh, members have been involved in a number of violent uh, incidents and violent events, and a number of them have been arrested on on violent charges. Can you tell me about the ADL report that came out last week? Yeah, so the report that came out last week from the Center on Extremism was the result of almost a year of research and reporting from our team. 
it came out of a data leak published by a nonprofit journalism outfit. They published this list last year in 2021. So we spent about nine months sorting through the 38,000 names that were listed as people who had at one point or another paid membership dues and signed up for membership in the Oath Keepers, uh, this anti-government group. And as we continued to sort through the information, we found that an alarming number of public officials, including law enforcement, members of the military, elected officials, first responders, and other people in sensitive positions were popping up as people who had signed up to be part of the Oath Keepers. Would you say that the findings surprised you? You know, I've been doing this work for eight years. It's very clear at this point in our country's history that extremism is becoming more mainstream. So I'm not sure that I was surprised by the findings. I was alarmed, as I think we all were. But, you know, we have also seen Oath Keepers who are identifiably part of military or military veterans or law enforcement who are part of the January 6th insurrection. So this didn't come out of nowhere. You know, we've been keeping a close eye on these groups and Oath Keepers in particular target for membership, members of law enforcement, members of the military, and they call on them to quote, sort of protect their oaths. And that's where their name comes from protect their oath to the Constitution, which they believe is being infringed upon by the federal government. Some of the Colorado law enforcement who were on the list have told reporters that they were surprised to be included because they haven't had contact with the group in years. Does being on the list mean that someone is an active member of the Oath Keepers? No. So we are, you know, we, we want to make clear that if you are named on the group, it means that during a certain set of years, you signed up for and paid membership dues to the Oath Keepers. It does not mean that you are currently an active member. Um, and, you know, in certain cases, it was, you know, well, I didn't realize what I was signing up for or, you know, oh, I, I had no further connection to them. I didn't follow up on these conversations or I didn't follow up on the membership. But the thing to remember is that Oath Keepers have, since their inception, since they were founded in 2009, always been an extremist group. It's not as if they've become more extreme over the years. And so people can say, oh, well, I didn't like what they became. They have always been the same thing. They have always believed the same things. We want to be careful about understanding that signing up does not necessarily indicate current active membership, but people who signed up were absolutely signing up out of interest in an extremist group. And why does it matter that military or law enforcement officials are members of this group? Yeah, so we wanted to pay special attention to people who are in those sensitive positions, uh, like law enforcement, like the military, like electeds. These people have outsized power. So let's say there's one person who is in a position of authority within a law enforcement agency or within the military or has you know, power in their community as an elected official. That person is then able to help, you know, share and disseminate extremist information uh, with their entire community, with, with their office. And they are also potentially able to take that belief system into the communities where they work. And that is extremely concerning because obviously we see extremist movements embracing conspiracy theories, embracing all of these 
ideas about America that we know not to be true. And then to have people who are in authority and who have outsized influence using their positions to bring that extremist ideology into the public space is fundamentally anti-American and it's fundamentally anti-democratic. Extremism has been on the rise nationwide. Here in Colorado, hate crimes are at record highs, according to the FBI. Why does it seem like Colorado and the Mountain West experience such high levels of extremism and white supremacy? You know, it's interesting. I think that people in every state believe that their state is experiencing alarming extremism, and every state is correct in that assessment. Colorado sort of falls somewhere in the middle in terms of its Oath Keepers numbers. Um, certainly, we've seen a lot of activity from, as you said, white supremacist groups who are a, a different type of extremists, but certainly, you know, raise very strong alarm bells, obviously. And we've seen that activity here in Colorado and in the Mountain West, as you mentioned. Compared to the rest of the country, Colorado is pretty average, all things considered. It is not the most you know, affected by extremist groups and is certainly not the least. But generally speaking, I think people are much more aware of these groups. They are having sort of an outsized influence because they are so good at making people afraid. Uh, that is their that is their goal. They want to make people afraid. They want to make people uneasy and, and keep them off balance. So they are having success in that sense because every single time they post a flyer in downtown Denver or in the Highlands or wherever they're posting it, they then take a picture and perpetuate that. They share it with all of their followers on social media, and then those people share it out again. And so it has this exponential sort of ripple effect that makes people believe that they're everywhere. They're not everywhere. And I, I try to remind people of that. They are still pretty small groups, but they are having a significant impact on the broader and sort of more mainstream political conversations in this country and political debates. And that is something that I think we all need to be extremely concerned about. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me. That was Jessica Reeves with the Anti-Defamation League Center on Extremism. You can find links to the ADL report on our website, KUNC.org. The Telluride Film Festival, which takes place each year over Labor Day weekend, is unusual in several ways. Its remote location, its downplaying of celebrity, and its short length. KUNC film critic Howie Mopchevitz teaches film at CU Denver. He says Telluride gives equal respect to films of the past and the present. The Telluride Film Festival doesn't separate older films from the new. They're all part of cinema, just the way the book world doesn't banish Shakespeare or Virginia Woolf to the backyard shed. Silent films at Telluride play at prime time in the main theaters. So the great French film restorer Serge Bromberg presented an astonishing program of work by the French pioneer Georges Méliès, who started making films in 1899. Méliès was a magician who saw film as an extension of his magic act and wound up discovering the foundations of contemporary special effects, the dissolve, stop-action photography, and superimpositions. He's the subject of Martin Scorsese's 2011 film Hugo. Méliès's career ended early, 
and broken in despair in the 1920s, he burned his roughly 500 negatives. But as Serge Bromberg exclaimed, Méliès didn't burn them all. For complicated copyright reasons, Méliès had a camera that filmed on two reels. Two negatives came out of the camera, and many of those second negatives survived. Bromberg realized that film from each side of the lens was something like human binocular vision. If he printed a positive from one side of the camera on top of a positive from the other side, he had, lo and behold, 3D. Méliès did not intentionally invent 3D, and he never did what Bromberg did. Yet inadvertently, Méliès created the raw material for 3D. And so Serge Bromberg put on an hour of Méliès in 3D, which was beautiful and great fun. Méliès' rollicking films are full of characters jumping around, appearing and disappearing. He loved explosions with characters and objects flying out of boxes, and many of the films are hand-painted in vivid colors. In 3D, the Méliès films are a blast, and frankly, far more playful than many of the somber 3D movies of recent years. A newer film at Telluride was a beautiful, restored version of Sally Potter's 1992 Orlando. Tilda Swinton plays Orlando, a young man in the court of Queen Elizabeth I in the late 1500s. She admonishes Orlando. Do not fade. Do not wither. Do not grow old. Orlando lives for the next 400 years or so, but midway Orlando becomes a woman. The picture feels thoroughly up-to-date in its look at questions of shifting genders. It's also, in its costumes, sets, and cinematography, stunning to look at. I generally pass up some of the new films at Telluride, especially if they'll be in theaters in a month or so. I choose what I might not have the chance to see again. But a new film by Japanese director Hirokazu Koreeda I won't miss. Koreeda's made a bunch of films about children, and often children who need care. Nobody Knows is about four children abandoned by their mother. In After the Storm, a divorced and irresponsible father must learn how to help care for his son. Shoplifter shows a group of people of all ages who form themselves into a family, and the crux of the film is the care of the kids. Koreeda's new movie, Broker, is about adoption in a way one might not expect. In Japan and in Korea, where the film takes place, mothers can drop off newborn children anonymously in what are basically deposit boxes. The film centers on two men who broker these babies. They sell them to adoptive parents. Koreeda, though, is constantly aware that things are more complex and nuanced than anyone likes to admit. The men are not brutish criminals, they love the children, and the film presents a constellation of these men, couples who hope to adopt, the police, and the young mother who regrets dropping off her baby. And as usual with a Coriata film, you're left trying to understand how people can best live in this world of ours. For KUNC, I'm Howie Mofshevitz. Howie Mopshevitz teaches in the Telluride Film Festival's program for college students. You can hear Howie on Friday afternoons on KUNC. This and more film reviews are on our website, KUNC.org. That's all for today on Colorado Edition. Thanks for listening. 
You can catch the Colorado Edition podcast every Friday. Just hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If there's a story you'd like to hear, send us an email at coloradoedition at kunc.org. Our theme music is composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Other music in the show by Burat Sessions. Production help comes from Maxine Spire. I'm Jocelyn Mesa Miranda. Have a great weekend.